Do you feel prepared? With everything going on in the world, do you find yourself thinking about self-defense, home protection, and financial protection more than ever? One form of financial protection is diversification. Gold has often been used to protect assets against inflation. Gold is a global reserve asset, and countries are buying massive amounts of gold as a hedge against financial collapse. It's time to help protect yourself and invest in gold. Stop thinking things are going to get better. You need to look out for yourself and your family. Visit LearnAboutGold.com. LearnAboutGold.com is a simple, free educational website. LearnAboutGold.com can help you learn about gold. Our website has extensive educational resources that can help guide you along the path of precious metals investing. It's time to inform yourself about why owning gold is more important today than ever. LearnAboutGold.com. That's LearnAboutGold.com. Three words. LearnAboutGold.com. Republicans are pouncing on the hypocrisy of Democrats for no other reason than that Democrats don't practice what they preach and lie all the time and are hypocrites. For instance, Michigan's Democrat governor, Uber Sturmfuhrer Gretchen von Whitmer, warned Michiganders not to go to Florida and then went to Florida herself. The fascist dictator of Michigan said that this was not hypocritical because she was visiting her father, whereas other state residents did not have fathers because they were not as important as she was. So who cared whether they had fathers or not? Adding to the pressure on von Whitmer was the fact that in spite of Michigan's unconstitutional and also fascist lockdowns, which include a ban on church going, praying and believing in God, unless you're in the process of looting a sneaker store in the name of racial justice, Michigan has had the worst Chinese flu rates in the country. Uber Sturmfuhrer von Whitmer blamed this massive policy failure on people who went to Florida when they were not important enough to have fathers, which included anyone who was not herself and who was therefore to blame for her policies. Another leftist hypocrite who has been called a hypocrite because she's a hypocrite is Black Lives Matter leader Patrice Kahn Coolers. Hypocrite Patrice calls herself a trained Marxist and yet recently went on a real estate buying spree, purchasing four homes in exclusive neighborhoods at a cost of over $3 million. The hypocritical hypocrite Patrice said that preaching private property is evil and then buying a crapload of private property is not hypocritical because she was investing in her family, family being another thing she preaches is evil. In a gathering of journalists and other wastes of God's precious gift of life, the hypocritical Patrice said it was not hypocritical for her to be hypocritical. And anyway, this was a gated community. And if the reporters didn't leave, she was going to call the police, whom she also preaches are evil. Another Democrat coming under fire for hypocrisy is president and venal houseplant Joe Biden. Biden has been part of the American political system since 1976 and now says that system is racist. He wrote the 1994 crime bill that put many black people in jail and now says they shouldn't be in jail. And he says violent addict George Floyd has made the world a better place. <laughs> Let's face it, what a crock of baloney that is. When asked whether he was being hypocritical by changing every opinion he's ever had to get on the good side of the public, President Biden replied, quote, who am I to say? No, really, who am I? Unquote. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hooray. 
back again, laughing our way. I'm not sure we're laughing our way through the fall of the Republic. We now may be laughing our way through a thousand years of darkness, uh, the dark ages. But this is a perfect time for you to subscribe to our show. Subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave a five-star review. That's really helpful. But also subscribe to my personal channel on YouTube and you will get uh, unique content and all our openings and all our shows. Uh, we'll send you some sneakers, maybe. I don't know. I, I, we'll see what we got lying around, and we'll put that there. And, and if you leave a comment, and the comment is sufficiently cruel and uh, insulting, we will include it in the show because it'll just fit right in with the rest of our commentary. Today's comment comes from Gary Francis, who says, as a houseplant, I insist that you apologize for comparing me to Joe Biden. And I <laughs> I do, you know, I do say a venal houseplant, but I know that the way people are, uh, they start to think that all houseplants are venal. And then you have fauna, hate crimes, and especially on houseplants that are Chinese. Some of you I know go to sleep at night. <laughs> weaklings, weaklings. I lie awake all night. And that's why I love my Helix mattress. The Helix sleep mattress is incredibly comfortable. They have a quiz, takes two minutes to complete, matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Whether you sleep on your side, whether you're a hot sleeper, or like me, you just lie awake all night. Helix Sleep will get you the bed you want. It's rated the number one mattress by GQ and Wired. Just go to helixsleep.com slash take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life or the best lying awake night of your life. Helix mattresses have a 10-year warranty. They're made right in America, and you get to try them out for 100 nights risk-free, and they will pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders at helixsleep.com slash Clavin. Get up to $200 off at helixsleep.com slash Clavin. I know what you're saying. I lie awake at night thinking, how, oh, how do we spell Clavin? It is K-L-A-V-A-N. So I'm going to talk about the uh, the white scare today. In the 50s, we had a, a red scare when everybody thought there were communists all over the place. I don't know why they would have thought that. But now we have a white scare where everybody is scared, scared of whiteness. Whiteness is a terrible thing. And I really think we should have the National Anti-Whiteness Day where people stop using any invention uh, created by a white man. I think that anybody on the left who really thinks that whiteness is a problem should do that, and that will really show us uh, what they believe in and how committed they are. There's just no inventions that are made by white men uh, should be used. But, my, you know, we'll get to the Derek Chauvin thing, of course. That's the big news of the week, and my take on it is a little different. But first, I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about why we're in this state of... Uh, of, of lying, why we're living in this empire of lies, because we talk about this a lot. And I've been doing, I do these, um, these all access shows and I get asked the question, how can we all the time? How can we save our country? How can we convince the Democrats? How can we beat back the left? And I want to try and give a response to that by defining where it is we are. And uh, as you know, I've been going through this theme. I won't harp on it forever. And I'll pro this will probably be, we'll move on from this. But the theme has been talking about the God made man and God made history. In other words, the idea that we're characters created by God and a story being written by God, and we don't fully see the extent of our character or the unfolding story that we're actually in. And we have to trust that all things work to the good for those who love God. And the one thing we have some control over is whether we will uh, adhere to his will and follow his will and become the people that we are meant to be, because we really don't have uh, full control or maybe even any control of the outcome. 
So I know I've told this uh, story before, uh, but it's uh, to me, it's a profound story. It's one of those stories that haunts you your whole life long. Uh, when I was a young man, I spent the night with a uh, lady who was a congenital liar. And she would li- she lied all night long into the morning. And everything she said was a lie. And when I would catch her out in a lie, she would simply replace the lie with another lie. It was really quite remarkable. Uh, just to give a made-up example, if she said she had a disease, uh, and I said, well, those are not the symptoms of that disease, she would say, well, no, you know, it's not really that disease, it's a disease like it. And I, when I said, you don't have that disease, she would say, well, I, you know, I didn't want to tell you, I, I said that because I didn't want to tell you I had this disease. And in fact, she had no disease. She was, <laughs> she was perfectly healthy. She was perfectly fine. And by the end of the night, by the time morning came, I found that I was living inside her lie so that I was it's not exactly that I was starting to believe her. It was that I was starting to react as if what she said was true because I was debating with her what disease she had when she had no disease. And the reason for that is I'm not insane, right? It takes an insane person to think that every single thing he's being told is a lie, right? To think that you're living in the matrix or a simulation, you know, is the kind of thing a crazy person believes. And yet right now we are effectively living in a simulation Uh, created by this massive telecommunications media empire that the left has assembled, the woke uh, businesses that have taken on being becoming part of the oligarchy with government that the government wants to to form and our government officials who are being backed up by the, the media. So we're kind of living in this matrix and you have to be insane to think that that's true. And yet it is true, right? So, you know, we've talked about the kind of lies. This is the least racist country on earth, but we're being told it's a white supremacist. There's a stain on our soul. There's a stain on my, our soul. And, and let me tell you, those soul stains are some of the hardest stains to get out. You got to bleach your soul and then your soul gets all stiff. You know, that we've got this, our souls are stained with racism. But in fact, no, this is, this is the only country on earth since the Roman Empire, and it's much different than the Roman Empire, this is the only country on earth that even thought that we could run a country without having a, a race-based country, right? It's the only time anybody has thought of that idea. We're told that Black Lives Matter, and Black Lives Matter is a hate-filled, uh, terrorist, racist group, yet they're having a hilarious uh, crisis. They call it a crisis, the Har- Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which is just this loose, corrupt group that runs the Golden Globes Award, and they have been forced to apologize because their former long-term president emailed a copy of an article uh, f- to members that call Black Lives Matter a racist hate group. So we're in the crisis because somebody told the truth about Black Lives Matter. We were told it was very important that people don't go to church because even if they're outside, they can't go to church. But if they're packed together in a demonstration, it's fine. And we were told those demonstrations were mostly peaceful when there were riots. We're told that climate change is an existential threat, right? And, and anyone who raises a question about this is a, a denier, as if you were a Holocaust denier. This is a really big lie because, of course, climate change disaster, there's climate change and, you know, we should always take care of our environment, but climate change disaster is a computer model that has been largely disproved in its most disastrous forms, the ones people like AOC sell. So to say that we can't tell the future of a complex system is just the simple truth. Whereas to deny the Holocaust, one of the most documented atrocities in human history, to say that that never happened is a little bit loony, right? So there's total total difference, but this is a lie. And all of these things, all of these things, people start to live within these lies because 
even if you deny the lie, even if you fight with the lie, that lie becomes the story. Katie Porter, the congresswoman from California, was questioning crazy teenager uh, Greta Thunberg uh, in a you know a fact finding one of these fact finding things. And this is what she said. Uh, this is what Katie Porter said about her child. Has got thirty. Ms. Thunberg, I just wanted to ask you one question. My, I have a nine-year-old daughter, I have three kids, and I told my nine-year-old daughter that I was going to be speaking with you, and I said, what do you think about the climate change, climate change? And she said, the earth is on fire, and we're all going to die soon. And I asked her how that made her feel, and she said it made her feel angry. What should I tell my daughter, and how should I help her and the youngest generation bear the emotional toll of the actions that we're taking, fossil fuel companies are taking to destroy our planet. By the way, if you actually believe that the earth is, we're all going to die soon, you don't feel angry, you feel terrified, (laughs) just so you know, because her emotions don't hook up to what she's saying. But the thing is, Katie Porter's child is not crazy. This is what she's being told, right? In order for for a nine-year-old to say, oh, all the adults around me are lying and making stuff up, that would be nuts. That That would actually be a mentally disturbed child. But but this is a sane child, so she believes all the lies she's being told, and in this case, the distortion that's being told. And by the way, about Greta Thunberg, Knowles, I think, still can't go on Fox News because he called her a mentally ill teenager, which is exactly what she is by her own admission. We're told our gender is a choice. You know, our gender obviously is an assignment. I'll try and talk about this more in the mailbag. Gender is a, a responsibility that we have to manifest a portion of the nature of God. And each time we're lied to, we have to address the lie so that the lie becomes the narrative. Right now, we are all talking about race in America. I talked about this last week. We're all talking about police shootings. <laughs> They're not the story. They're not an issue. It's, it's, it's seriously, it is not an issue. High crime and dysfunction in black communities and minority communities, this is an issue. The end of the mom and dad family is a huge issue. The failure of our churches and the loss of faith that's come along with that is an issue. The deep disrespect and hostility for the humanizing, urgent, central work of homemakers, wives, and mothers, uh, who C.S. Lewis said basically was the central profession and all other professions are built to support it. Uh, These are the people who make men men, who make uh, children human, who make domiciles into homes, uh, and who make life human. They make life human. And and by the way, if you are a homemaker or a wife and mother, uh, and, you know, I know, I know how deeply disrespected you are and how people talk to you and how people ignore the uh, thing that you are doing. And it it is a a deep, deep problem in our country and in our society in general. I will tell you, I'll tell you, this is straight up true. You are seen. You're not just seen by me. You are seen in the halls of heaven. And uh, when you walk through the gates of heaven, the angels will take off their starry crowns and bow their head with respect. And that is just the living truth, because as we know, the things that are not appreciated on the earth are frequently appreciated above the earth. Fighting back against these lies makes the lie the narrative. If you have to defend the fact that you're a homemaker, if you have to defend uh, the mom and dad family already, if you have to defend the fact that police shootings aren't the problem, police shootings become the narrative. And that's why that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. And it's distorting for all of us, especially those who believe it. There's a University of London professor named Eric Kaufman. 
He talked about, he's done this survey and he talked about what effect all this talk about racism has had on people. He did a study about it. He was talking to Ben uh, Dominic on Fox News. This is uh, cut two. Just to give you a concrete example that is rooted in undisputable fact, um, I asked the question uh, in my surveys to both black and white respondents, um, what is more which, which is the more likely cause of death for a young black man in America? Is it a car accident or is it to be shot by police? Um, we've, it's a clear fact that it's about 10 to 1 in favor of car accidents over a police bullet, and yet, Eight in 10 African-American uh, Biden voters and, and seven in 10 uh, whites who believe that Republicans are racist, or sorry, that white Republicans are racist, actually said that it was police that were more likely to be the cause of death for young black men. So this is leading people to have a distorted picture of reality. And that then feeds into a whole series of uh, political attitudes. The lies become the narrative. The narrative distorts the way you look at things. And then the way you look at things distorts your politics. And so people you know, ask me this question, how can I? How can I convince the left? How can I save the country? And they talk a lot about the people who are rioting. They talk a lot about you know, people having this kind of overreaction to the conviction of Derek Chauvin crying. Oh, finally, people see it. Now things will be so much better. People talk about the madness of crowds. It comes from a 19th century book called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. But I don't think the people are deluded and I don't think the crowds are mad. I think they are sane. I think they are too sane to believe they are being lied to all the time when, in fact, they are being lied to all the time. That's why you're seeing these reactions. That's why you're seeing a child who thinks the world is going to end and everybody's going to die. That's why you think you find people who think more blacks are killed by police gunfire than by traffic accidents. That's why you see people weeping when Derek Chauvin, with joy, when Derek Chauvin is convicted of murder. They're being lied to by the president. They're being lied to by their politicians, then leaders. NBC lies to them, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Coca-Cola, Delta, Disney. Why? Why are they all lying? Now, you know, we were talking a little bit about this on the backstage show, and you can have all kinds of big theories, and a lot of those theories have a, a lot of truth in them. We were talking about utopian thought, and we we're talking about all the ways in which utopian thought has to cover for itself. But just on a basic political level, let's just talk on a basic political level. We're talking about these stories, these false stories, because the true stories, the true problems in our country are problems of policy that the people in power caused, their policies caused the problems. The failures in our country are the elite's failures. And if they direct us to the true problem, we would blame them, right? Whereas if they t turn us against one another, if they point, oh, there's a white man, uh, you know, they have the white scare going on uh, and the white people then see the black people rioting and they get angry at the black, uh, their black neighbors and their black fellow citizens, they, we are not paying attention to them. It is they who did this. It is the elites, the people in power, the people who run the corporations, the people who run the journalistic corporations and their journalistic outlets, the people in the, the White House and the people in Congress who have created the problems they're blaming on the last guy. I always say the police, the police officer is the last guy to deal with a social problem. He's just cleaning up the mess. It's the people in the in power who caused those things. Welfare policies, right? Welfare policies. Do you know that before the Great Society, which was Lyndon Johnson's absolutely huge program, just like what Biden's doing now, there's an absolutely huge program of welfare and uh, money transfers. Before that, after the Civil Rights Act got rid of Jim Crow, black people started rising into the middle class at a, at a good rate. 
after those policies, they stopped rising into the middle class. They slowed. Their rise into the middle class slowed. Their educational policies, the left's connection with the corrupt teachers unions that still will not open the schools, that is sapping the energy and the education and the forward-looking progress of blacks out of the out of slums and out of difficult situations. The philosophy that damaged the family, right? It was welfare and feminism that destroyed the black family. Black, blacks used to have a 25% out of wedlock births. Now they have a 75% out of wedlock birth, which is worse than it was in slavery days when Democrats were actually selling families to different parts of the river, right? It's worse than that. Their policies have actually created a worse situation. And why? Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a, a prominent Democrat, warned that this would happen. He said, if you start giving money, welfare money to people when they have illegitimate children, they'll have illegitimate children. You get what you pay for, right? And the feminist said, well, that's just sexist because a fish, you know, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. You go to a prison today, you see a lot of guys, almost all the guys behind bars today are guys who were raised by fish who didn't have a bicycle, right? So they go after the symptoms. They go after the black man shot by the police because the cop is out there trying to save his life and get make sure he gets home okay, dealing with the problems they created, dealing with the problems their policy created. And never forget, these policies have brought in trillions of dollars in tax money that the Democrats can then use, and sometimes the Republicans too, can use to pay for votes to say, we're going to give you this, we're going to give you that, we're going to give you this free money, all this free money. It's it's not free. It's our money that they have taken to buy power for themselves. And they get richer and richer and more and more powerful. You know what it's like? It's like a cigarette maker telling us that our, the crisis we have in this country is not enough cough drops. You know, oh, you're coughing blood. You're coughing up blood. Damn it. You know, it's the cough drop companies. We've got to we have got to do something about the cough drop companies. Have a cigarette and I'll get right on it. That's what this is like. An entire entire power structure. We are now surrounded by an entire power structure whose policy failures and whose incredible debt and whose moral failures have made it necessary for them to distract us from their increasing power and wealth by turning us against one another. We are living inside their lives. And when you ask me, what should you do? What should we do? You know, I, I know I talk about this a lot, but it's been haunting me recently. It's been ha- haunting me the, the trial of Jesus Christ where the crowd comes out and they shout, crucify him. And Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler, says, I'll give you a, I'll release somebody for the Passover. I'll release a prisoner. And they call for Barabbas, a criminal, to come out. They elevate a criminal and they murder the truth. Give us Barabbas, crucify the Christ. And when I hear them talking about George Floyd and Dante Wright and what wonderful, wonderful people these guys were, people who have abused women and robbed women and held women at gunpoint. And they're, they're saying, you know, here is Barabbas. Barabbas is the good guy. And when you read the Bible, it says the it says of the crowd, the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. The crowd was not insane. It was not an extraordinary delusion and the madness of crowds. It was the sanity of people who could not believe that their leaders would stand in front of them with their faces hanging out and tell them lie after lie after lie. Even the saints panicked. And even the saints ran for their lives because they didn't know the story God was telling. They didn't know that the truth would come back. And when they did see the truth came back, the saints came back, even though it sometimes cost them their lives. So you ask me, what do we do? How do we convince? How do we change the country? How do we save the country? I think I have to ask you, what are you doing right this minute? Who are you right this minute? What are you showing people right this minute? Your school, your town, your job, your marriage, your family. What are you showing them? 
Who are you? What are you doing? And it's not just about serving on boards, though you should serve on boards. You should uh, run for school board. You should show up at school board meetings. You should show up at town hall meetings. But it's what your kids see you do, what, what experience your wife or husband has when you, when you are, walk in the door, what your coworkers see, the words that come out of your mouth. We are living in an empire of lies. We are being lied to and lied to and lied to. And in order for the truth to live, it has to live in you. And I know what I'm asking you to do. I know I'm asking you to take chances. I had a friend, I, I can't tell you the full story, but I had a friend canceled uh, just yesterday in a terrible, terrible way. I know that it is a dangerous, dangerous time. This is the fight we're in. If the truth is going to live, it has to live in you. So when you ask me, how do we, how can we? The answer is, what are you doing? Who are you? Who are you being to the people around you? Not the people on TV, the people around you in the life you live and in the town you live in and in the community you inhabit. You have to represent the truth. Yes, it's important. You want your car to run. You want to get the parts your car needs. But even more important is keeping your family together. And how many marriages have been saved by just the guy saying one day, rockauto.com. <laughs> That's the ticket. Because not only does your wife know you're now smart enough to not get in a car that's broken and drive to a place where they're going to sit there going, oh, yeah, I don't know what car or part your car needs. Now she knows you're smart enough to look on your computer where you can get everything you need from rockauto.com. And not only that, she knows that you're the kind of guy who says rockauto.com and exactly that sort of voice. Rockauto.com is a family business. It's been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Their catalog is unique, really easy, and best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low. So go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Clavin in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know we sent you. you got to say that the same way. And say rockauto.com. Who sent you? Clavin. And then you got to spell it. K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in Clavin. You know, Everything about the white scare is a lie, starting with the phrase Black Lives Matter. There is no such thing as a black life. There is no such thing as a black life. You are made in the image of God, and anyone who tell, who puts any kind of other modifier on that is making you less, not more. But just talking about the police, just to get into a couple of facts and figures, you know, in Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot says she may require the police to ask for a supervisor's permission before he gives chase, okay? <laughs> they have 50 murders a month in Chicago, 50 murders a month, almost all black people, by the way, so vast, vast majority uh, black people, but you have to call in. And, and while you're chasing the guy, uh, every now and again, you have to shout out to the suspect, mother, may I uh, continue chasing? And if he says, mother, may I, and then turns around and says, duck, duck, goose or something, I think you get frozen uh, and then he gets to kill you. Uh, but, you know, the number of murders is going up. This is only the fourth month. This is uh, April, right? It's the fourth month in New York City. There have been more than 100 murders, there been nearly 180 murders in Chicago. That is a huge policy failure, That right? That's a policy failure. So let's say that's 50, that's approximately 50 murders a month. Let's say they're, they're mostly black people. In 2020, 241 black people were shot and killed by the police in the United States of America. That's 20 a month. 20 a month in the United States of America, 50 a month, 20 a month killed by police in the United States of America of 350 million people, 50 
a month killed in Chicago by killers, by the kind of people that the police are sent out to stop. Now, I tweeted this. I tweeted something like some of these statistics. And brainless leftists, the thing I love about leftists is the superiority, the dripping superiority. You know, it's what a fool you, what a fool you are, knave, to say such a thing because you're now comparing, you're comparing police to thugs. No, I'm not. I'm identifying where the problem lies and asking you the question, why aren't we dealing with that problem? And it's because the police are mopping up the problems caused by policy. You know, you want to see the left in a nutshell? I mean, this is the New York Times, a former newspaper. Although I'm reading this book, I'll have the author on soon. It's called Gray Lady Winks. It's about how they got Hitler. They supported Hitler. They supported Stalin. I'm not sure it ever was a newspaper, but it was for a period of time in the 80s. It was a decent newspaper. So they still are not fully opening schools around the country because of Teachers unions. Teachers unions don't want to go to work. They like their power. They like squeezing people for more money. They like squeezing people for more vacation. They don't. They think, oh, we're in danger. We're in danger, even though the science says they're not. This is a New York Times, a genuine New York Times editorial. Does it hurt children to measure pandemic learning loss? Research shows many young children have fallen behind in reading and math, but some educators are worried about stigmatizing an entire generation. In other words, your policy caused the problem, but do not. Do not step forward and say that our policy uh, caused the problem. The problem is stigmatizing children. That's on you. That's on you. Anybody who's saying this, chase him down, get him thrown off Twitter, get him fired from his job because he is stigmatizing. What kind of a monster would stigmatize children? Uh, let's keep the schools closed and make sure kids wear masks and tell them they're going to die from climate change anyway. Here's a mom in Georgia. Talk about the heroism of moms. Here's a mom in Georgia confronting her local government, uh, telling them what's going on uh, with her kids, 29. This is not March 2020 anymore. We have three vaccines. Every adult in the state of Georgia that wants that vaccine is eligible to get it right now. And every one of us knows that young children are not affected by this virus. They're not. And that's a blessing. But as the adults, what have we done with that blessing? We've shoved it to the side and we've said, we don't care. You're still going to wear a mask on your face every day, five and six-year-olds. You still can't play together on the playground like normal children, seven and eight-year-olds. We don't care. We're still going to force you to carry a burden that was never yours to carry. Shame on us. It's April 15th, 2021, and it's time. Take these masks off of my child. We chose you to make decisions that would be in our children's best interest and forcing five, six, seven, eight, and nine-year-old little children to cover their noses and their mouths where they breathe for seven hours a day, every day for the last nine months for a virus that you know doesn't affect them. That is not in their best interest. And this has to stop. I'm telling you, folks, the angels will take off their starry crowns. Her kids are not worried about dying because of the weather. Her kids are worried about their life being ruined by idiots in power. Which one of those is more realistic? You know, it's just just amazing because it's their failure. This lockdown, you know, Dennis Prager, our pal Dennis Prager said that the, the lockdown was the biggest mistake in human history. The biggest, but I, I think World War One beats that out. But it is the biggest policy mistake, uh, the biggest policy failure since the Vietnam War. There's no question about it. So Derek Chauvin's conviction, the guy who killed George Floyd, I don't 
my, my opinion on this is a little different because I don't really have an opinion about the verdict itself. And the reason was I used to be a, a newspaper man. I covered trials. I learned very quickly that a trial looks very different in a courtroom than it does on TV. And it looks very different in the jury box than it does anywhere else. One of the alternate jurors said he was afraid that if uh, they didn't come to the right verdict, his family would be in danger. But, and I'm sure that's true, but I don't know whether the verdict itself was right. I do not know whether the verdict itself w- was right. I, you know, let's let's say it was. It doesn't matter whether it was or not. The only thing that is true is he didn't get a fair trial. It is not a fair trial when corrupt congresswomen like Maxine Waters are out in the streets calling for riots if they don't get the verdict they want. This is cut nine. We've got to fight for justice, but I am very hopeful and I hope uh, that we're going to get a verdict that to say guilty, guilty, guilty. And if we don't, we, got, we cannot go away. What should protesters do? Well, we, we got to stay on the street uh, and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they, they know that we mean business. <laughs> okay, i got to get more con- con- uh, confrontation. We haven't burned down enough stuff. We haven't chased enough people. We haven't screamed at diners sitting outdoors because they can't sit indoors and told them they have to say Black Lives Matter or suffer the consequences. That's not a fair trial when a congresswoman is doing that out in the street. It is not a fair trial when the president of the United States is saying this. This is cut eight. They're a good family, and they're called for peace and tranquility, no matter what that verdict is. I'm praying the verdict is the right verdict, which is, I think it's overwhelming in my view. I wouldn't say that unless the, the jury was sequestered now, not hear me say that. But so we, we just talked to them, I want to know how they were doing. It's not a fair trial when the local paper, the Star Tribune, is putting out enough information about the jurors that they became easy to identify. They didn't give their names, but they they gave enough information. CBS TV gave uh, this kind of information that could dox them, essentially. The, the fact that this guy didn't get justice, that he didn't get a fair trial. Again, I'm not pronouncing on the verdict. I'm really not. But the fact that he didn't get a fair trial is the failure of our elites. It's a failure of our elites. And the fact that people are applauding it is a failure of our elites. The the judge in the case, uh, Peter Cahill, when he heard what Maxine Waters had said, this was his reaction, cut 12. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch in our function. I think if they want to give their opinions, they should do so in a respectful and in a manner that is consistent with their oath to the Constitution, to respect a co-equal branch of government. Their failure to do so, I think, is abhorrent, but I don't think it has prejudiced us with additional uh, material that would prejudice this jury. He doesn't want to take the, he, he said it might be overturned on appeal. It should be over, it should. There's no question that it should be overturned on appeal. He didn't get a fair trial. He did not get a fair trial. And when they asked uh, Jen Psaki if Biden should have made his comments, is what she said. Cut 16. 
Does the president agree with what she said about getting more confrontational? Well, I can speak to the president's view. Um, he has been very clear that he recognizes the issue of police violence against people of color, communities of color, is one of great anguish, and it's uh, exhausting and quite emotional at times. Uh, as you know, he met with the Floyd family last year and has been closely following the trial, as we've been talking about, and is committed to undoing this long-standing systemic problem. <laughs> you know, just the fact, just the fact that they talk about uh, police killings of black people without talking about the crime rate in black communities, which is a problem of men, right? It's men who commit violent crimes, almost exclusively murder. They almost, I think it's 95% of murders, I think, uh, are committed by men. So that means 7% of the country is committing 50% of the murders. And it, it, how is that not relevant to what a police officer is facing? Because the why? Why are they doing it? Because the police officer is the guy who's handling the policy failures. Those are policy failures of the last 60, 70 years. 60, 70 years. These failures have been getting worse and worse and worse. And Nancy Pelosi has a gated home in the San Francisco area. She has a beautiful, beautiful home. And all of these people have gotten incredibly powerful and incredibly rich. They've gotten very, very wealthy. They do not want the structures that have failed to be taken down. They do, and, and no Republican, listen, let's not give the Republicans any credit here. No Republican is saying, yeah, we got to get rid of the welfare system. Yeah, we got to get, we got to cut back on some of this. We got to redesign the system from the ground up. You know, I mean, we, th this is a problem that has been here since the, you know, they're not doing that either. All right. I am, as you can see in my studio in Nashville, so I'm not at home, but if you've got ring doorbells and ring cameras, you can see and talk to anybody who comes to your door. So much is happening at our doors right now. Deliveries, people coming by to see us. It's a perfect time to upgrade your doorstep with a Ring video doorbell. With Ring, you can keep an eye on your home no matter where you are, right from your phone. And Ring has hassle-free, easy to install indoor and outdoor cams, so you'll never miss a visitor. You can keep those packages and deliveries safe. There's a special offer on the Ring Welcome Kit at ring.com forward slash Clavin, and it comes with Ring's Video Doorbell 3 and Chime Pro. So don't wait. Get a special offer on the Ring Welcome Kit at ring.com slash Clavin. It comes with Ring's Video Doorbell 3 and Chime Pro. It's the perfect way to start your Ring experience. Go to ring.com slash Clavin. That's ring.com slash Clavin. From now on, wherever you are, anyone comes to your door, you can look at your phone and say, how do you spell Clavin? And if he says K-L-A, <laughs> if it's that guy, call the police. I don't even know what the Republicans are doing. They're posing. They're taking pictures of themselves at the border. You know, they're sitting around talking about, you know, Dr. Seuss, which is an important issue, but not their issue. They're not in charge of Dr. Seuss. <laughs> that's, not, that's not their problem. Their problem are these policy things that have failed and that the left is protecting by turning us against each other. Look, that white man uh, you know, hates you. Look, the black man is rioting. You know, I mean, we're all Americans. We're all in the same country. We're all the victims of these policy failures. We're all living with these policy failures. And the worst people in the country are now running the joint. And that is the truth. The worst people in the country are now getting interviewed on television. The worst people in the country are now interviewing them on television. And people like that mom are the ones who are suffering. That is one of the best people in the country. And she's the one who's suffering and her kids are suffering because of their failures. And instead, they're pointing at, a, 
at us at one another. They're pointing us at one another. They're saying, look at the evil white guys. Look at the rioting black guys. That's not the problem. That's not the problem. The problem is we are living in this empire of lies meant to protect the emperors. It's meant to protect the emperors. And that, that's why the bad folks, the bad people, not the people who get the guns pointed at them, not the little children. Oh, my Lord. Uh, a fellow I follow on Twitter posted the pictures of the children, the black children who've been killed in these neighborhoods just in the just in the first part of this year. And the list of pictures went on and on. It was heartbreaking. You, a stone would weep to see these children being blown away. They don't care. They do not care. Who's the hero? Who's the hero? It's George Floyd. George Floyd, a guy who stuck a gun in a pregnant woman's belly while his friends ransacked her house. Here's Nancy Pelosi on the verdict. This is cut 18. This is what she said after the verdict. Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice, for being there to call out to your mom. How, how heartbreaking was that? Call out for your mom. I can't breathe. But because of you and because of thousands, millions of people around the world who came out for justice, your name will always be synonymous with justice. <laughs> that's, that's not what his name is synonymous with in my house. But, but you know, you, the, the people on the left say, oh, we think these people deserve to die because they were criminals. No, I don't think that. I don't think that they deserve to die. I, just, I think that if you resist arrest and you're violent and you're, you increase your chances of dying. And I'm not that prone to turn around and blame the cop who's trying to get home, who's been protecting your neighborhood and your fellow uh, citizens and now is in trouble because you did something. I thought to me, you know, but it's, it's give us Barabbas. It's the, t- take a look. Don't look at the truth. Crucify the truth. Give us Barabbas. Set this guy free because otherwise you've got to start to listen to the voices of the people who are suffering in these communities. You've got to listen to the black person who's starting a business in that community, but his business has just been burned down. Nobody's interviewing those guys. You've got to listen to your neighbor who just says, hey, you know, I want my kid to go back to school. I want my kid to go back to school. I'm a single mother. My kid is home because you're putting on your mask because Dr. Fauci has lost his mind because of the power he has. Dr. Fauci was a good doctor, but man, oh man, he has gotten just corrupted by those cameras turned on him. Unbelievable stuff. And, you know, the kids got to go back to school. They don't need to wear a mask. The teachers union's got to suck it up. It is ridiculous. And they don't want you to talk to the good people. So we got to talk to George Floyd. George, what a guy. What a guy he was. What a guy. Listen to Biden's reaction. This cut 20. For so many, it feels like it took all of that for the judicial system to deliver a just, just basic accountability. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, like uh, black lives don't matter. Uh, un- unbelievable stuff. You know, that in other words, it took the riots. You had to riot to get justice. And that's essentially what he's saying. They love those riots. Those riots are good for the Democrat Party. The riots are great for him. They, they love it. So, uh, you know, here's the thing about him talking about, for instance, institutional racism. This is a guy who's been in government since, I think, 1976, I believe it was, since the 1970s. He wrote the crime bill in the 1990s to put black people in, uh, all these black people in prison. And by the way, that crime bill was a good bill. That crime bill actually brought down crime in those neighborhoods. But it's just a start, right? You're putting people in prison, you know, every every other black guy being put in prison is not a good answer. It was just a des- the desperation because crime had 
become in those days like it is now because of leftist policies. It was a reaction to the failure of leftist policies. So they put, and again, it's the guy on the bottom who, who suffers, right? Nobody said, hey, we've got to do something to, to get, mom, get dads back into those families instead of putting up stupid billboards telling you to act like a father. We've, maybe we should start rearranging our welfare policy so we don't pay people to have children out of wedlock. Maybe we ought to bring back the churches and, and actually preach the, the morality that keeps people together. Maybe we got to start preaching about this and stop telling people they're, they're sexist if they say there's got to be a father in the home, you know, saying that fish has got to be riding on a bicycle or she ain't going anywhere, right? Unbelievable. And the New York Post, Stephen Nelson, the New York Post, the, the actual newspaper of record in this country now, asks Jen Psaki about these, the fact that Biden has been in this, this system that is supposed to be racist is Joe Biden. He is the system. He's been in the system for so long. New York Post Stephen Nelson asks Jen Psaki. This is cut one. To what extent does President Biden uh, acknowledge his own role in uh, systemic racism and how does that inform his current policy positions? Well, I would say that um, the president's one of the president's core objectives is addressing racial injustice in this country, not just through his rhetoric, but through his actions. And what anyone should look to is his advocacy for passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, for nominating uh, leaders to the Department of Justice to address uh, long outdated um, policies uh, and to uh, ask his team, leadership team here in the White House to prioritize these issues in his presidency, which is current and today and not from 30 years ago. Does he believe it's important to accept his own culpability? I think I've answered your question. <laughs> Shut up, Stephen. Shut the hell up and get out. Don't tell me about Don't bring the truth. And this is this is the, the White House press room. They, we don't have the truth in here. You can't tell the truth in the White House. press. Today, she brought in cookies. She brought in chocolate chip cookies. The journalists were thrilled. They were like, oh, boy, chocolate chip cookies. This is almost as good as information. And the news media, of course, we have to we just have to make at least a detour to the news media, the Media Research Center uh, during his, Joe Biden's first three months in office. The broadcast evening evening newscasts have showered Biden with 59 percent positive press as opposed to the 89 percent negative press they gave to Donald Trump. So this is a guy, right, who is loading regulations and spending onto the economy, and he's not going to be penalized for it because the economy is going to come roaring back from the lockdown, right? So he's going to benefit from the roaring back of the lockdown. There are already articles, oh, the Biden boom, the Biden boom. I, uh, <laughs> it's not a Biden boom, but, you know, these things are going to come back back up and, and destroy the economy about two, three years down the road. But this is the way they're covering this guy. Tonight, history is made. Joe Biden becomes the 46th president of the United States. Joe Biden, whose own life has made him an expert on healing from trauma, now <laughs> taking over a country that needs exactly that. Kill me his now. heartbreak and hard work, his empathy, bringing him to this moment. Here in Europe, among America's allies, there is a sense of relief. And that cabinet meeting today showcased the most diverse cabinet in history. Cooper Jones says she yeah, thinks the Biden administration I will help heal America's racial divide. The majority of Americans, including Republicans, approve of his efforts to get more shots into arms. The president right. delivered a shot of hope. And the reporters didn't have a single question about vaccine distribution, international vaccines, the COVID economy, and the fact that there was no COVID questions. Well, in some ways, that's a, uh, a reflection that maybe COVID's going pretty well for Biden. The president has also condemned the racist rhetoric used to describe the virus. Biden also getting high marks for his handling of the economy. 
you have you when everybody is saying the same thing, you have to be crazy to think that it, it's all lies. You have to be crazy to think that you're living in the matrix. But you are. I mean, this is the problem. We are too sane. So we get involved in these conversations like, oh, we can convince these people to stop lying. You know, uh, a terrible story. A girl got shot in Columbus, Ohio by a cop, 16 year old black team. Kia Bryant was about to stab another girl. It's on the body cam from the police. It's on the uh, uh, cam, one of those iPhone cameras somebody was using nearby. She is lunging to cut this woman down, to cut this fellow uh, teenager down. Uh, the policeman shot her to stop her from committing murder, right? And the left is thinking, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, though, another police, a terrible police. What was he doing? This is, <laughs> let, me, let me read you the. Bree Newsom, an activist, says teenagers have been having fights, including fights involving knives, for eons. We, <laughs> we do not need police to address these situations by showing up to the scene and using a weapon against one of the teenagers. You all need help. I mean that sincerely. Valerie Jarrett, who was Obama's chief advisor, right? They, they basically said she was running the place. A black teenage girl named Makia Bryant was killed because a police officer immediately decided to shoot her multiple times in order to break up a knife fight, demand accountability. She was in the process of stabbing this girl to death and nobody would have said a word about it because we don't hear about those little children dying in Chicago. We don't hear about those. I mean, you got to go on and look at, at the pictures if you want your heart to break. I mean, I don't. I, maybe you don't. NBC, the 911 call to the police was these grown girls over here are trying to fight us, trying to stab us. Here's how NBC played it. Cut 26. Officer Nicholas Reardon, who joined the force in December of 2019, was responding to a 911 call. We need a police officer here now. Video shows Reardon approaching a group of young people in this driveway. What the video shows is the female with the knife attempting to stab the first female. Reardon fires his weapon four times, striking Bryant. They, they took out the person saying she's trying to kill us with a knife. He's trying to, they, they just cut it out. They just, they're, here's, here's Jen Psaki uh, describing this, this situation, uh, cut 24. The killing of 16-year-old Michaela Bryant by the Columbus police is tragic. She was a child. We're thinking of her friends and family and the communities that are hurting and grieving her loss. And her death came, as you noted, just as America was hopeful of a step forward after the traumatic and exhausting trial of Derek Chauvin and the verdict that was reached. So our focus is on um, working to address systemic racism and implicit bias head-on, and of course to passing laws and legislation that will put much-needed reforms into place at police departments around the country. Why aren't they talking about not just the girl who would have been killed, but about the knife wielder's family? What's her family situation? Why aren't they talking about that? Why aren't they talking about all those children being murdered all the time in Chicago. Why aren't they talking about? Because it's their fault. The policies are their fault. There's nothing written in the genes of black people that says they can't have intact families. That's absurd. That is absurd. It is Democrat policies that did it, that created the situation, that created these neighborhoods, that created a situation where the people who get out because they work hard, because they follow conservative principles, they get out, but everybody else is left behind. The victimizing, the race cards, all of it, their fault, all of it to turn us against one another 
left and right, left and right to turn left and right so we can't even talk to one another. How can the left talk to us? How can they talk to us when they think we're racist? How can they talk to us when they think we don't care about black lives, right? How, why should they? They don't want them to talk to us. They don't want us to debate. They don't want us to be uh, sharing different opinions and working out the different opinions. And they do not want black people to like white people. And they don't want white people to like black people because then we will pay attention to where the failures lie, which is with them. They fire you, they cancel you, they crucify you for telling the truth because the truth is there to blame. One of the reasons I'm excited to be here in Nashville is I got my 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 slippers. I so many my's in there, but they're my slippers. You've heard me talk about how much I like my pillow because I'm lying awake all night. I want to be comfortable when I get up at night. You know, I live in a kind of countrified setting. Sometimes there are bugs on the floor. You go into the bathroom, there's some enormous caterpillar or spider. So I never walk barefoot. So I love to have a great pair of slippers. And now I have gotten these, my slippers. They, I've just got my hand inside. This thing is so comfortable. This is great. It's really hard to find good slippers. You've got to be able to slip them on, but you've also got to be snug and fit to your, and fit your feet. These are great. So go to mypillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use promo code dailywire. You'll get deep Discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow towel sets, and these terrific slippers. Or you can call 800-951-7163 and use promo code DAILYWIRE. Visit MyPillow.com now or call 800-951-7163. These are great. I love these. So I want to talk about churches and the failure of churches, too, because that's part of what is happening. Uh, I got a question in the mailbag today from another Drew uh, who says, my biggest fear regarding the state of our country is the future of the church. He says, I'm 21 and my generation, including myself, are mostly degenerate. I see a lot of churches, especially at college, who water down the message to make it more attractive to young people. Um, I appreciate the attempt to get more people involved. But I don't think changing God's word to make people more comfortable is a good idea. My question is, how do we make Christianity an attractive option for people my age without watering down the message? Our churches have failed to do this. Uh, they failed. Well, it's, it's worse than that. American membership in houses of worship uh, has continued to decline. It has dropped below 50 percent for the first time. And this happens very fast, by the way. This happened in Europe in a generation. The church has just emptied out. Um, this is the first time in Gallup's eight decades of uh, taking polls that church attendance dropped below 50%. In 2020, 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque, down from 50% and 70% in 1999. It's a quick drop. The decline in church membership is primarily a function of the increasing number of Americans who express no religious preference. They're not religious, so they don't go to the church. Over the past two decades, the percentage of Americans who do not identify with any religion has grown from 8% uh, to th in 1998 to 2000, to 13% in 2008 to 2010, and 21% over the past three years. And the reason is they're not preaching the gospel. The churches are not preaching the gospel. If you have a Black Lives Matter church sign on your church, you are not preaching the gospel. There are no black lives in the gospel. There are only lives in Jesus Christ in the gospel. If you put a pride sign for gay, what, what, how many weeks, the months do gays now get? How proud We're so proud of them. We have to give them, uh, I think, an entire month to be proud. If you put a pride sign on your church to celebrate gay pride, you're not preaching the gospel, not because 
Joseph Gaze, but because pride, you know, Knowles was once on my show and he told me the Catholics called pride the queen of sins. And I said, well, now it's the sin of queens, which is a funny joke, but it's it's unfair to gay. It's not fair to gay people because it's pride is the sin of uh, everybody. We all are uh, pride. It's the sin of the flesh. It's the sin of wanting to be self-creation. I've, I mean, this is an embarrassing thing to tell you, but it's absolutely true. I have felt resentment of God because it's God who makes me happy. It's God who gives me joy. And I think, why well, shouldn't I be making myself joyful? I mean, why, why do I have to be grateful to God all the time? And I feel that pride, you know, in, in my novel, Another Kingdom, uh, the, the final novel in the trilogy, The Emperor's Sword, there's a point where the hero, Austin Lively, begins to see demons sucking the life out of people. And I could feel when I felt that, when I realized that I actually resented God for making me happy and not letting me do it myself, I could actually feel like this demon stuck, this squiggling, horrible, writhing thing stuck. You know, it, got, it smelled that broken part of me from my childhood and just got burrowed in there. So they're not preaching the gospel. They're literally preaching the world. Separate people by their skin color. That's the world. That is always always been the world. That is not endemic to America. That is not special to America. That has always been the world, except in one place, your church, except in the churches, except in the gospel, where everybody is included in the body of Christ. Everywhere else, that has always been the world. Create yourself through your desires and then be proud of it. That's the opposite of the gospel. We're made by God and we're supposed to lose ourselves in order to find ourselves, let go of our desires and and shape ourselves in the image of the spirit, not the flesh, the image of the person we know we're supposed to be, but we aren't. We know when we're looking at porn or when we're drinking too much or when we're smoking dope. We know we're not that person we're supposed to be and we're supposed to grow into that person instead of fashioning ourselves in the face of our desires. It's a massive failure. You know, Jesus said, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. So a church preaching Black Lives Matter, preaching gay pride, does that sound like a church that's against the world when every politician says that, when every TV show preaches that, when every corporation is preaching the same thing? Does that sound like your church is ready to be hated by the world? No, it's like, love me, please, love me, I'm saying the right things. That's what your church is preaching. So, of course, it's empty. Why, why do I need it? I can watch Netflix. Really, ser- seriously, if I, want, if I want Black Lives Matter, I can turn on Netflix. Why would I go to church? What, what a crazy thing. What a, you know, what a waste of my time. The answer, obviously, is the gospel. I mean, this is what Drew, the male, the, the uh, letter writer, is saying. It's not the opposite of what they say. It's not reactionary. Uh, it's not being reactionary. It's not saying, well, you say Black Lives Matter. No, they don't. You know, it's not saying, you know, let's, let's, let, we should go back to persecuting gay people. You know, it, that's obviously not the answer. It is what is in the gospel. And what does that look like? Why do we, do, why do we even go to church? Why do we have to worship together? You know, I mean, Catholics have a, 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 an answer to this because their priests carry God to them. Their priests mediate between them and God. They perform the mass. They intercede in confession and, and penance. And, and by the way, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that when you have a good priest. I think when a priest is actually doing that, he is a true priest, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But I'm a Protestant. I don't think it's required. I think we can be priests to one another to some degree. Um, but the thing about church is we always talk, whenever we talk about church, we talk about morality. And I don't think that that's the right answer. Morality is the lowest form 
of religion. And when I say that, I don't mean it's the least important part. I'm being a little provocative. I don't mean when I say lowest one. I mean, it's the base. It's the baseline. It's the thing on which everything else is built, right? It, it's the thing, you know, it, it's the thing we are, we, the platform we stand on in order to reach the thing we're trying to get to. Paul in Romans says, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the moral law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So you're you're getting rid of those things as a kind of practice, right? You're trying to clear the decks. If you're occupied with lust, if you're occupied with alcohol, and you know I love a drink, if you're occupied with porn, with whatever thing you're doing that is taking you away from the spirit that is keeping you chained in the flesh, and by the flesh I mean the things that your body just wants as like an itch, you know, it just wants to uh, scratch that itch, then you're not focused on becoming a person who loves, a person who is joyful because he loves the face he sees because it's the face of God. He loves the face of his neighbor because it's the face of God. It's the image of God. You know, the rich man says to Jesus, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, you know the commandments. And he reads off a couple of the commandments, six or seven of the commandments. And the guy says, well, I, I follow the commandments. And Jesus says, oh, well, then give away all your money. <laughs> the guy is down, downhearted because he's rich. And Jesus, you know, Jesus was no big fan of money because he knew that money changed you to the ground, changed you to the flesh, just like everything else the world gives you. Everything else the world tells you is good, it changes you to the flesh. But what he was saying is, oh, if you've done all that, if you've cleared that moral morality away, now it's time to let go of the world, to start rising upward into that thing that you're supposed to be. Get the immorality, get the desires of sin out of the way, and then you'll be able to start to let go of the world. And you know, your desires are for good things, right? Your sex is a good thing. You know, food is a good thing. But you know, if you're 300 pounds, not so good, right? It's, it's, the, it's the fact that the body can't distinguish between too much and, and the ultimate um, image of things, right? You know, if you show a, uh, if you've got a spider who likes hairy legs and you make up a spider with even more hairy legs, the spider will go after that more, that that imaginary spider. And that's what happens when you watch porn. If you start to watch porn, it starts to not thrill you anymore. You go into darker and darker images that are the extension of uh, sex. They're the kind of limits of sex. So you start out watching two people having sex and you wind up watching a rape video or a, 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 a sadistic video. That's the way these things work. That's what you're trying to get rid of. Morality is the thing that frees you from this. So what is, what is this morality that we're talking about and why is it important? Why does it help us get to a place and why do we need to go to church to have it? All right. Let's take baseline morality. It's wrong to hurt a child for your own gain or pleasure. We all know it's wrong unless you're a psychopath or an abortionist. Even the abortionists actually know it's wrong. You know, this, uh, this is a great story. I got a, this is a, t a tangent, but it's a great story. I, I, Alexis McGill Johnson, who's the head of Planned Parenthood, wrote a New York Times op-ed saying, it's time for us to take responsibility for our founder, Margaret Sanger. We've defended Sanger as a protector of bodily autonomy and self-determination while excusing her association with white supremacist groups and eugenics as an important as an unfortunate product of her time, it's time to admit that she's practicing eugenics. So these two guys in the Wall Street Journal, Charles Donovan and Robert Marshall, they wrote, they've written a book about Planned Parenthood and they wrote back and said, no, 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 wait a minute. Sanger was a full on eugenicist. Her ideas about racial betterment, the elimination of what she called human weeds 
weren't merely the regrettably common view of a different time. She went further than most. She proposed a baby code in 1935, 1934, that required licenses to marry and said the license to marry should be separated from licenses to have children, that nobody had a right to have children because she didn't want evil people, not evil people, biologically unfortunate people, in which she included blacks, to be uh, to be born, right? Now, the thing is, the thing is, Planned Parenthood still believes in eugenics. They now know that you can get canceled for killing black people, which is largely what they do, right? They kill an awful lot of black children, but they still, they still have fought lawsuits. They still have fought laws and filed suits to strike down laws that stop you from aborting people with Down syndrome, right? In Iceland, they actually say we've eliminated Down syndrome. What they mean is they've eliminated the people with Down syndrome. Hitler won. You know, I mean, this is this is the truth. So, but they so in, in other words, they know it's wrong. They're just making excuses because it's good. They, you can you can kill your kid and have a better life uh, instead of a life having to take care of this kid that you didn't mean to have. So they they believe in killing children for your own profit. But we know it's wrong. Where is that wrong? Where does that wrong exist? Where show it to me? Hold it in your hand. You can't. You can't. It is an invisible thing. It is an immaterial thing. It is an immaterial fact. Just like an idea. If you have an idea, two plus two is four. You can incarnate that idea by putting two pennies with another two pennies and you get four pennies. But it, the idea doesn't have any physical being. It is just there in your mind. Now, it might be a true idea or it might be a false idea, but if it's a true idea, then it exists somewhere. It exists in the mind of God, right? You are seeing God's view of creation. You're seeing the human version of it. We can't see God's version of it. We can only see the human's version of it. And that's why we get together because it's invisible. We get together because it's invisible and we have to see it together and remind each other that it's there and encourage each other to believe it's there. This is why. God takes physical form so we can see the God we know, Jesus, to understand the God we can't see and cannot comprehend. And that's what we have to gather together to do. And you know what? If the churches fail us, we have to start doing it ourselves. We have to start gathering together. I'm in the process of moving house, but this is something I'm really dedicated to, that if I can't find a church that is preaching the actual gospel, I will start to build a gathering of people who do it themselves. We've got to do it. We have been failed here yet again. When you see a Black Lives Matter or Gay Pride or any other thing, from any other trendy world idea on your church, that church has failed. They are not preaching the gospel. So really important to diversify your investments. You know this, the stock market has been going up, but what goes up frequently goes down, whereas gold is predicted to hit $3,000 in the next year. Under the last Democratic president, gold went from $700 to $1,900 in two years. That's 300% growth almost. What better way to protect yourself from the imminent tax hikes under our new president than with a gold investment? Monetary Gold is a precious metals company whose biggest focus is helping savers protect their portfolio by setting up self-directed IRAs. They only offer precious metal products that are IRS approved. Call 888-201-7717 to get your free gold guide from the folks at Monetary Gold. Monetary Gold is here to help you take advantage of a sound investment strategy that will help you diversify your portfolio. Call 888-201-7717 to get your free gold guide called Monetary Gold at 888-201-7717 to get your free 
Gold Guide. All right, it's time to catch the latest episode of Candace tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, only on DailyWire.com. Candace is fired up about the events of this week, and she's got a lot to say. But to get the full uncensored version, you have to become a Daily Wire member. So join in time to catch tonight's live stream and get 25% off a new membership with code Candace at DailyWire.com slash subscribe. That's not all. Candace is joined by another Ultimate Fighter guest, Dana White, the president of the UFC. I like the fact that the copy doesn't mention the fact that she's also joined by me. I'll be on her panel. Subscribe now and stream Candace tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, only on Daily Wire, and get 25% off a new membership with code Candace at dailywire.com slash subscribe. Make sure you grab the audio podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever your platform of choice might be. And because we know you're craving what the mainstream media won't give you, the truth, just head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and subscribe to Candace today. And be sure to leave a five-star review if you like what you hear. And I will see you there. So as you know, when we bring on a guest, we like to sort of up the class level of the show. And the way we do that is I walk outside and the seventh person who goes by, I just haul him in uh, today. <laughs> my, my son, Spencer Clavin, no relation. Uh, he has a an absolutely terrific podcast called The Young Heretics. If you are not listening to this, you are really missing out. He is also, what are you now, an associate editor? Or? Associate editor. Okay, yeah. so he's now the associate editor of the Claremont Review of Books, my favorite journal. I read it from cover to cover every single day. This was true before you were working. That is it. true. You're actually, you're, you're, we don't pay you to say this. this is, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, it's actually, that was true long before I worked at Claremont. Yeah, and and you also now have The American Mind, which is kind of the young Claremont. Yeah, uh, yeah. Claremont for like very online people, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been listening to your show, The Young Young heretics, and you've been dealing with some of the same things. We've kind of, oddly enough, we think of some of the same ideas. Imagine. <laughs> yeah. It's weird because we're not related to I each know, other. I know. We've <laughs> never met before. Right. But, but, but one of the things that has come up, I was at Dave Rubin's house just before oh, I yeah. came here. We were at a party, and I got in a conversation, and I said, you know, I don't think that conservatives can make sense of their arguments without God. Right. That we try. We've got libertarians. They don't want to believe. We've got people who sort of believe but don't believe and all this yeah. stuff. But more and more, I feel that we just can't make the arguments we have to make if we are not going to accept that there's something there. And you've been dealing with this in a kind of ancillary, kind of a roundabout way by yeah. some of the books. The Young Heretics is a book about culture, a, a podcast about culture. You talk about the great works of culture. It's kind of the classics class we've never had. Yep. And you've been talking about my favorite novel recently, Crime and Punishment, which I, I won't say it's my favorite novel. It's the novel that changed my life. When right. I was 19, I read Crime and Punishment and realized that relativism didn't work and mm. that it was kind of now coming up into the schools and everything. What is it about Crime and Punishment that is so remarkable? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, what you're saying about the right, broadly construed, including, you know, all the guys that are just refugees, basically, from, like, wokeness. Right. right. Um, they, we are struggling with this. And whenever you or I talk about it, you know, you get actually a lot of pushback, which yep. is surprising to me, because you think of the right as the sort of super religious part of the country, basically. Right. Um, but there are a lot of folks, you know, the worst advertisement in the world for religion is religious people. Yes. And so there are, like, so awesome. folks, you know, associate this with, like, fist-thumping dogmatism, right? But what's genius about Dostoevsky, I think, I mean, there's a bunch of things, but for, for Dostoevsky and, and for, for us, this is more about, like, just a logical necessity than anything else. It's about what happens when you take the God piece of the puzzle that, away, right? I mean, the whole novel is 
and, and Dostoevsky in his own life had been in these sort of, you know, socialist circles as a young man. And it was very fashionable and popular to have these utilitarian arguments that, that doing the greatest good for the greatest number was all that really mattered. You were, we were going to have progress. We were going to have, you know, reconciliation between the classes. Um, and all of this sort of moral absolutism, the absolute worth of a human life. Well, you know, what, what was that? And this, this is this very God-derived thing, right? Either God says... Your life is in my image, and there is no getting around that. Or you can, you know, this the argument basically that Raskolnikov, who's the main character of the of the novel, makes to himself is, well, there's this this woman, this pawnbroker, and she makes everybody around her miserable. She's a horrible person. Just a miserable yeah. old crone, you know. And there's no there's no doubting that. Everybody knows that right. she sucks. And so he sort of just talks himself into, well, you know. Wouldn't the world be better if I just offed this lady? Yeah. Right? Yeah. If I killed this person, I could redistribute her wealth. I could give it to people who would make better use of it. She would stop making everybody miserable. And all I have to do, right, is just transcend this divine and, and it's And it's the abortion argument, too, in, in its way. I mean, okay. it's, it's why, why can't I do this? Why am I not free to do this? What am I going to—I'm going to be punished by a baby. I made one mistake, and now I'm going to have this child for life. Right. You know, it's, it's what, what is it about a human life that can't be taken? Right. Why should it not be taken? And the thing we should mention, too, is that Dostoevsky sees— the communist revolution coming. Even though it's far off, he sees it coming down the pike, so he knows. Yeah. He's living in a moment that's not that different from the, this moment now. He was re- remarkably prophetic. Yeah. And we've talked about this before, I think, mm-hmm. on this show. You yeah. know, the, um, This has been said of poets, great poets like Euripides, but of, of others as well, that the poet is a prophet because he sees his own time so clearly. Right. Everybody else is still fighting the fights from 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And Dostoevsky said, he said, in order for the world to wake up, it's going to have to be enshrouded by the devil essentially, ah, yeah, um, which was, you know, that Solzhenitsyn, the great Soviet dissident, was still quoting that in 1983, mm. he received the Templeton Prize, which right. is this, you know, sort of award for uh, for genius, essentially for arts and letters. And he was a, a phenomenal, you know, a, a titan of the late 20th century. And he said when, when Soviet Russia, when the Soviets were taking over Russia, all the old people stood around and they said, men have forgotten God. And that is why this is happening. Mm. And he said, in all my lifetime of studying and reading books and, you know, trying to contribute to the history of this period, I have not come across a better explanation for what is going on than that. that you, you know, reading, the reason that crime and punishment had such an effect on me and ultimately led me to Christianity, it turned the ship of my life in yeah. that direction. And I didn't realize it for 30 years, but 30 <laughs> years later, I thought like, oh, it was because I read this book. There's a moment, we should give away the fact that it happens fairly early on, yeah. that there's a wonderful moment where Raskolnikov kills this woman right. and it's kills like her the sister. It's third of the it, novel. Yes, it's, and, and it's, it's one of the great, I mean, it's one of the great Hitchcockian <laughs> suspense moments. Uh, as a mystery writer, there's so much in, in, in Crime and Punishment uh, that contributes to the things that we see today. I mean, the pictures like The Closer, TV shows like The Closer, yeah. all come yeah. from the kind of exchange between the cop and Raskolnikov. But he kills this woman and he bumps into the moral web. He finds that he actually, he does have a conscience. And there's a moment when the Christian prostitute, Hmm. Sonia, he he confesses to her and her reaction is, oh, what have you done to yourself? And by the way, that is the moment when I put the book down and 
buried my face in my hands yeah. because that was the question. The question is not what have you done to this pawnbroker, but what have you done to yourself? Mm. What did Dostoevsky know mm. about pulling God out? What, what was he able to show in that moment that, that we are not communicating well enough? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so hard. The reason why he can show it, and this is why art matters so yeah. much, right, is because you, can, you and I can sit here and make these philosophical arguments and we can say, well, there has to be an ultimate good if, there's, if some things are better than others. and there ha- You know, these sort of theological arguments. But artists put the world in front of you. They, yes. they confront you yeah. with the emotional truth of the world, right? And that scene where he kills pawnbroker and uh, Lisa Vetta is the name of the other character whom right. he kills, who's this, who's this sort of sweet, uh, childish figure, you know. Um, Raskolnikov and we, the readers, at the same time, we, we discover that there is just no getting away from the fact that this is an atrocity, mm. right? The emotional reality of the worth of this woman's life. You know, Dostoevsky had come to grips with this himself in this incredibly dramatic way because he was condemned, essentially, he was condemned to death by, uh, by the czar. And, and then, you know, for, basically for reading dissident literature aloud, he was condemned to death. And he, he had the sentence commuted to the last minute. So he was on a fire. But he was on the fire. Oh my God. Yeah. So he was like staring yeah. down the barrel of a gun. Yeah. Suddenly this messenger comes, gives him this note, right? You're actually, instead, you're going to serve hard labor, essentially. He was, he was exiled. Um, and he wrote to his brother before he left for exile to say, I've suddenly realized, in that moment, I realized how much you mean to me. Mm. I, I, suddenly, I've realized how much l- there is to life. And there's, the thing about this, right, is that it's not like something you can argue for. You can't be uh, like... That's a really good point. You know, like, yeah. you can't be like, yeah. this is why every human life matters inestimably. You simply have to just experience it in the right fact of your own. I mean, what Dostoevsky realizes is that if his life meant that much to him, and, and if, if, you know, he could never again convince himself that, oh, somebody else's life is a, is a mere trifle, right? You just toss it away. You know, Tolstoy, the other great Russian novelist right. uh, of those two supreme novels, there are many great writers, but he wrote a, a little pamphlet called What is Art? in which he said, you know, art is a way of, trans, uh, of communicating emotion from one heart to another, from right. one person to another. Once you face that firing squad, once you've realized how, as you say, inestimably valuable yeah. life is, you, you can't argue that. You cannot make that argument right. uh, as a logical argument. And this is one of the reasons the age of reason ends with, an end of ter- with a reign of terror, right. is that reason alone will not get you to that place. And this is why that confrontation between Raskolnikov and Sonia, so Sonia, the, that Christian right. prostitute, right, who's been the kind of the spiritual heart of the novel all along, um, he, in that confrontation, goes through all of these tortured arguments for why what he did was right and okay. And, and it, what Dostoevsky is basically saying is, like, without God, these arguments all make sense. Mm. Like, there's no, yes. there's no resource in utilitarianism for explaining why you shouldn't murder a woman in cold blood. And what Sonia says to him is sim- simply, you have defied God, mm-hmm. and now you must repent. Like yes, you, yes. You, just, and the, the absolute of that, the thou shalt not kill, right, has to just come from an ultimate source of moral authority, as indeed it does in, the, in Scripture and in reality, right? right? If it doesn't, then yeah, you just, you know, well, look, this baby that I'm carrying in my womb, it, it would probably live a terrible life. Yeah. Maybe it would be in poverty, and so all of these things are terrible. So shouldn't we just 
do away with it. And, and we don't have resources to answer that unless we have God. And and you get these thing, these ideas like Black Lives Matter, and when you say All Lives Matter, you're, right. you're shouted down. But but in fact, they they pretend what they mean is that Black Lives also matter. But that's not what they mean right. because when a shooter. Uh, shoots white people uh, and because he's a, a Bernie bro, those lives don't matter because right. they don't fit the narrative. So they li- lives are utilitarian to the left, especially. They are utilitarian objects to the left that either enhance the narrative and then therefore matter or don't enhance the narrative and therefore don't matter. Right. And by the way, it's not all black lives that matter. Yes, that way, that's right. right. It's yeah. politically expedient black lives. Right. Because when, for example, you have a knife fight confrontation, right? It only matters that the cop shoots the girl holding right. the knife. It doesn't right. matter that the knife could have killed the other So the, the amazing thing, and you talk about this on The Young Heretics, on your show about uh, um, Dostoevsky, which I think is called The Soul of a Murderer, I think mm-hmm. the title yeah. of the show. Um, you talk about the fact that he, he's basically arguing with Nietzsche, who hasn't published yet. <laughs> yeah. So he hasn't read Nietzsche. He's, uh-huh. just, he's just deduced Nietzsche. Right. Um, he has, you know, he's living past the French Revolution, so he has seen Saad. And for me, the two, on, the only two honest men who deal with atheism in an honest, honestly face the ramifications of atheism are the Marquis de Sade, mm-hmm. who invented sadism, after whom sadism is named, sure. and, and Nietzsche. Yep. And both of them say you cannot have a moral universe w- without God. Right. But, they, but both have different solutions. Well, I mean, you, you found this, right? In yeah. your, it's in your memoir, right? Yeah. That you, and you, obviously we've talked about it endlessly. Right. That, you know, you basically traced atheism to its logical conclusions, right. which are either a sort of pure sadistic exertion of pleasure, which is Desaad, or the sheer will to power, which is Nietzsche, right? Just the strongest win. Yes. It's a very old idea. Some some Superman is going to come along and, and present a new moral world. That's what right. Raskolnikov has convinces himself he is, right. that he is this ubermensch who's going to... You know. And the funny thing is, and this is actually key to a lot of the political stuff that we're seeing right now, right, is that, you know, the, the, the terms that we're talking about, God, we're just saying there has to be an ultimate good, right? right. There has to be, this, right. like the first step is there must be an ultimate good. And the people who jettison that, unless they're as smart as, as Nietzsche was, which few are, right? They just end up putting something else in the place of that ultimate uh-huh. good. Right? I mean, this is G.K. Chesterton said this, uh, that, that the idea that religion is the opiate of the masses, that, which is a Soviet idea, right? It gets it exactly backwards because religion is the only thing that gives you a standard outside of the mm, world yeah. to aspire to. Right. If you if you don't worship God, you just worship the strongest thing. You worship power. Right. right? And and we're seeing all sorts of crazy, like quasi-religious stuff going on. People are lighting prayer candles to Stacey Abrams, right? They're being forced <laughs> well, to... Well, who wouldn't, right? Well, right, <laughs> I mean, you know, the Saint, Saint Governor of yeah. wherever. But yeah, I mean, people are being forced to kneel and recite creeds, right? I remember in summer of 2020. That, yep. So all of this stuff is, is just... It's, it's not actually kicking God out so much as it's just putting power in the place of God, right? Uh-huh, putting right. this empty... And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that Nietzsche actually did read Dostoevsky. Yes. Even though Dostoevsky didn't read Nietzsche. And... And he said, this is the only psychologist who has anything left to teach me. Mm. Because he saw that, that Dostoevsky understood the same thing he understood, which was that people were basically trying, you try to take the God part out, the absolute morality part out, and then the system will all work, right? Then you'll have this perfectly calibrated socialist system where everybody has enough and nobody fights and all the classes are too. And, and, and of course, 
What Dostoevsky saw is that what that would ultimately amount to was actually just savagery, right? It was right, terror. Right. Um, and, and I think essentially Dostoevsky and Nietzsche are these, these two sides of one coin. They both see this and they go two different ways. Right. Dostoevsky's like, well, then we must believe, right? We must. Yeah. And, and Nietzsche says, well, now we, it will just be pure sort of will to power, which we see. Yeah, and I, and I mean, I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the fact that Nietzsche and, and Saad, I mean, I, I appreciate the fact that they are honest about right. it because I really do feel that that we conservatives, we don't want to grasp this nettle. Yeah. We do not want to say, and, and you make this great point that, that religious people can be very off-putting yes. and, and, very, and, and come across as judgmental. I, I mean, I think that religion, quote unquote yeah, religion, yeah. is too often a means of condemning other people for what they do that you don't do. But it's Christianity like said that in the Bible. It, it, that was what would happen. That's yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. right. And Christianity is not supposed to be that. It's actually, a, this is the thing I think that moved me so deeply about that scene where Sonia says, what have you done to yourself? Right. Because it implies mm -hmm. that you are going somewhere. You are doing something. Your life is actually a fashioning of a soul, mm -hmm. a creation of a soul. John Keats called the life the veil of soul making. Yeah. And, I, and I think that that implication that we are doing something is, is really important uh, because it takes your attention off other people's sins. Oh, 100%. Well, here's something else that Solzhenitsyn said that really got yeah. to me, you know, is, is that People, and, and this is true now too, people feel powerless over this stuff, right? Yeah. Conservatives yes. feel a lot of despair. Yes. Um, because the because the Democrats run the country and they're so crazy, they're so far left, and these you feel these terrible horror stories about them taking over schools and forcing children to have these terrible yeah. things. Um, and so people feel like they don't have anything, anything to do. The, the reality of it is, right, that the West is saved anew every day in every human heart, right? Like, the question is yeah. not, like, what big argument you're going to make on Twitter. The question is, how are you going to raise your kids tomorrow? How are you going to build your family? And these religious questions, right, which get wrapped up, people have all this baggage associated with them, like churchy right. baggage, basically. Yeah. Um, these, are, these are actually just questions about how are you going, like, what are you living into? What's the, what's the North Star right. of your life? And if you make it something outside of you, the good, the true, the beautiful, then you will flourish. And you'll flourish even if you're persecuted, right? Yeah. And that's, that's, of course, the, the sort of shocking message of, of the gospel. But yeah, I think, you know, can, it makes perfect sense to me that leftists have this instinctive reaction against religion. Right, yes. What does not make so much sense to me or what dismays me is when conservatives have this. Yes. Because as you are arguing, it sounds like, that this is shooting yourself in the foot. Like it's cutting the branch off you're sitting on, you know. <laughs> right. We, yeah. you know, leftists at this point practically have abandoned the aspiration to be, you know, just and, and yeah. uh, to believe in equality before the law, to be right. um, colorblind, all of these things they explicitly don't want to be. We want to be all of those things. Right. We want to believe in life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness and the endowment of those rights by the creator, right? But that sentence, right, that, that whole idea only makes sense if you're saying there is an absolute moral authority that is bestowing these rights upon you and the government protects them but can't take them away. Right? We you can't know, make that argument. I, I got into this Twitter thing with David French where I yeah. said, you know, we've got to stop people like, uh, Twitter, the Twitter sites and things like this, the social media sites, from censoring us because the right to free speech comes from God. Government is in instituted to preserve those rights, mm -hmm. so it has the right to stop them from, from doing these things. And, and everybody said, oh, well, that's a religious argument. 
but it's the axiom of the country. It's right. a basic, you know. Well, people get very confused, I think, because because Christian Christianity has been the dominant religion in America for so much of right. its history. Um, people elide the distinction between theism, like believing in God, which is right. what we're talking about, yes. and like enforcing some Christian mm-hmm. doctrine. Because there is a protection, right? Again, the Establishment Clause of the Constitution protects against establishing any one sect. So it would, it would be unconstitutional right. to say like, well, now we're all going to believe in the Nicene Creed, right? But you and I, who believe in the Nicene Creed, can also say like there's a, there's a bare minimum of, of theism that the founders would have taken for granted. Yes, they did yes, take it for yeah, granted. And yeah. it, many of them said, John Adams, George Washington said, that this system won't work unless we, we take as a premise the fact that there is a, a divine creator, worship him how you like, do the rituals you want to do, but understand that there is a divine creator who has certain attributes, such as love and justice, and he does not have other attributes, such as you know arbitrariness or right. evil. And, and, and therefore, like recognizably, we can say God endows us with these things, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, right? the, the, the freedoms outlined in the Bill of Rights, all these things are non-negotiable yeah. because God. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I used to uh, cover courts. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time. Oh, yeah. But I used to cover trials. And uh, when they would question the jury in voir dire, you would find out that people don't understand uh, what how evidence works, circumstantial evidence. They think if it's circumstantial evidence, it's no good because they watch that on TV. Right. But if you look in the snow and there are footprints in the snow, you are allowed to deduce that somebody <laughs> walked there. And if we have rights and if life is, is worthwhile... Uh, that is a footprint in the snow. Yeah, a very, very big footprint in the snow. <laughs> Spencer Clavin, my son, no, but no relation. Uh, he is. Listen, please listen to the Young Heretics. You really will enjoy it. It's it's really terrific. Claremont Review of Books. If you're not reading it, you are missing out. My favorite journal, and he's involved in all of them. He, you know, what can I say? And American Mind is the Young Claremont. Uh, it's, that's all online, right? American Mind. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Is, Spence, great so to, see to see you. you. We yeah. will. We'll talk again. Okay. Sounds good. All right, enough of this insanity. Let's fly into the dark heart of sanity itself with the mailbag. You're next! Yeah! <laughs> I, was, I forgot to mention that. LeBron James is putting out a tweet saying, you're next to the cop who shot the teenager saving a life. Uh, I do want to read this uh, mailbag. Is not, uh, this, this letter is not a question, but it comes from Tristan. He says, Andrew, I just wanted to say thank you, uh, and that, in fact, your vice- advice was 100% correct. I doubt you remember, but about three years ago, I wrote in about some trouble I was having as a new father. Uh, I was struggling with anger, both that my infant daughter wanted nothing to do with me and would cry whenever I held her. I do remember this letter. I remember it very well. He said, I was angry at myself for having a brief urge to shake her, which I didn't. I set her down in the crib and walked away. Your advice changed my life, and my now three-year-old and I have an amazing relationship. Your advice made dealing with my son two years later way easier, and now I have a third on the way. Again, thank you for your help and life-changing advice three years ago. Thank you, Tristan. Thanks for taking the time to let me know. Seriously, it means an enormous amount to me that you'll let me know. I can't read all these on the air, but uh, it really does matter to me when you let me know that stuff, and uh, and I do appreciate it. Um, From Sally, hello from Texas, Hot Gandalf. I just love, I love that moniker. I've got to get that on a card. Uh, thanks for always making me laugh through my tears. Your intros are always the highlight of my week. We live in a very racially diverse neighborhood and have friendly relations with neighbors of colors of all colors as a white person. Uh, and even though our neighbors are super nice, I find that in conversation, I avoid any topic that might cause them to bristle. Um, it seems to me that avoiding these topics may actually be racist because it presupposes that they would be offended when I have no idea how they feel. How do we as a nation and how do I as an individual have those conversations with uh, my neighbors? 
or should we just avoid anything that could possibly be awkward or uncomfortable? How can we bridge the gap? Well, it's a great question, and I will I can only tell you my philosophy about this, which is I don't do race. I just don't do it. Uh, you know, I mean, I feel like a, a man's a man who I feel there are two kinds of people on earth. There are men and women. That's it. You know, and that's and we should just uh, talk about that. It doesn't mean that your experiences won't be different. It doesn't mean you didn't come from a different culture. It didn't, doesn't mean you didn't um, get different reactions from people that shape your world. So I, I will say anything uh, to anybody that, you know, anything that I would say, I would say to anybody. But in, in this case, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong if you and your neighbors get along with sitting down with one of them who is becoming a friend and saying, hey, you know, I really like you and I really respect you. But I have to tell you, with all this stuff in the news, I sometimes hold my tongue because I'm afraid to talk about anything that might offend you uh, because you're black and I'm white. And, and frankly, I, I don't care. Uh, I don't care that you're black and I'm white. But I, but the news has gotten kind of in my head. How do you feel about this? What, you know, do you, you know, people do this to my son, Spencer, no relation, uh, who, because he's gay. And they'll say, you know, like, I, I feel that this is a sin. <laughs> Spencer's like, I don't, you know, you can't insult me. You can't insult me. I've heard everything. So some people may say, you know, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. I had a, I had a friend who was black and I once said to him, you know, like, isn't it time to get past this? And he said, no, race is everything. Race is what matters. And I thought, yeah, okay, well, we we're just not going to agree on that. So I just don't do race. I, you know, the left has tried to convince us that, there's some racism that can be expelled that, from your mind, but otherwise uh, you are guilty of the sin of racism. And I suppose that's true in the sense that we are all sinful people and our hearts are sinful. And when Jesus said, when you feel lust in your heart, you've already uh, co committed adultery in your heart. But what he was telling you is that's how broken you are, not that lust is the same thing as adultery. So I feel the same way. If some tribal thought goes through my mind or some racist thought goes through my mind, too bad. You know, I'm just not going to act on it. I'm not going to play with it. I'm taking each person as he or she comes. And, uh, and I think that that's what you should do. And you should talk to them about anything. But there's nothing wrong if you feel uncomfortable with with saying that to somebody you know i feel uncomfortable because of all this stuff in the news how you know can we talk about that you know it's like the, the people right they, if how would you react if someone said that to you you would tell them what you felt and and how you felt about it and they'll do the same i hope um from zach proffer proffer of clavany goodness and inerrant life-changing answers uh we need your help i have a question as a father of two sons both under five one of my concerns is how to best demonstrate for and teach my sons what it means to be a man of God. Uh, you once said, yeah, we don't need fathers. Come on. What, what is this guy going to do? Uh, you once said when sharing thoughts about gender and spirituality that masculinity and femininity are related to spiritual truths that our bodies are playing out. The comment inspired me to explore further. Most expediently, I am curious if you could elaborate on what you mean by these spiritual truths related to masculinity and femininity and how fathers like myself ought to engage with our young sons, children in general within such truths. Yeah, I mean, whenever you talk about men and women, you generalize. And obviously not all generalizations apply to every single person. And so we're just, we're just going to have to get used to that. We can't talk without generalizing. And the left always says, oh, it's an insult because you left out this one person over here, this one person over there. But we're going to be adults and we're going to generalize. Um, you know, it says in the Bible that God created man in his image, male and female. And that lets us know that even though we react to God as a father uh, because we are all his children and we react in some way, we take the feminine role with God because everything that comes out of us, he put into us. And that is essentially the feminine role. So God is always the father. He is always masculine. We know that God is not either masculine or feminine. He is both because he made us both male and female in his image. And that means that he meant for us to represent something of him Himself in that difference. We 
are meant to be. That's why I was saying before the left says gender is a choice, but I say it's an obligation. I say it's an assignment. You are assigned uh, the job of being masculine or feminine. And of course, that takes a million different forms. Not every, uh, you know, feminine girl is a Jane Austen heroine and not every masculine man is a soldier. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of different ways, but I think we can make some kind of generalizations. Uh, people, I have been asked actually in interviews, what is the most important quality of a man, and I've always said courage and integrity, and I think those two things are related. And they say, what is the most important quality in a woman? And I always say tenderness and generosity. And obviously, I think those are things that we represent. If you are unjust to your children, if you're dishonest to your children, and listen, everybody's dishonest sometimes, but you know, you can you can fix it. You know, I mean, uh, like I, I remember once uh, falling off the wagon with cigarettes, which what just a terrible thing, very brief. But my daughter caught me and felt like I had been lying to her. And I said, yeah, it's my mistake. I, I goofed. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't. I should have just said I'm, I'm having this problem. And here it is. You know, that's that's the way it goes. But but, you know, that's that's being honest. That is representing honesty and integrity to be who you say you are, to be what to do what you'll say you'll do is at the heart of things. And I got to tell you, um, Zach, that I see a lot of people younger of the younger generations who don't understand this, who don't show up on time, who don't do what they say they'll do, who say, yes, we're going to do this and then say, oh, you know, I forgot I can't do that. Uh, you know, we can't always fulfill our obligation, but we can always try. We can always make sure that we people know we're going to do it or not going to do it. Those are the things you represent. Your kids should know when you say if you do X, you're going to go to your room, that they should know that that means that is going to happen. It's not going to happen later. It's not going to happen the third time. It's not going to happen the fourth time. It's going to happen the next time. They've got to know when you say, I'm going to take you to this place, you are, you know, the zoo, you are going to take them to the zoo. They've got to know that when you come home, you are your wife's husband and not with that nice girl at the office who's been treating you so well uh, that it wouldn't hurt just to go out for a drink. You know, I mean, I think that that's the, those are the things that you have got to represent. You've got to represent the courage to speak your mind. And this is what I was saying in the opening uh, that, you know, when you don't do that, when you come home and say, oh, my boss said this and I didn't have that, that's what they see. That's what they learn. They are not learning that part. So we know that God is just. We know that God is utterly just, which is a, a kind of masculine trait. And we know that he's utterly merciful, which is a kind of feminine trait. And every kid knows on earth, and obviously, again, generalizing, but every kid knows on earth that he's going to get a break from his mom, but he's going to get the hard hand <laughs> from his dad, right? They know that the, the mom will let him off the hook. So she's representing the merciful, the perfect mercy of God, and you're representing the perfect justice of God. And those things together are going to give that child a home in which he understands the fullness of God and the fact that you can have perfect justice and perfect mercy together. He knows it because he's lived it. And this is the problem that kids have who don't know it, who don't live it, is they begin to think the flaw is with God because the people who were assigned, as you have been assigned, to represent those qualities of God to the child failed. And so he comes to think that God has failed. Let me do one quick uh one more quick one. Brad says, in regard to the recent UFO confirmation by the Pentagon, what would the discovery of intelligent life on other planets mean for the Christian faith? As Christians, how should we react or think about this possibility? Uh, you know, I've, I've been kind of hoping these are evil aliens come to take over the earth because at this point it would be an improvement. Um, but I, I don't think we know. We don't know. Did they, are they also in sin? Did they also fall? Uh, did they also have a God incarnate in their form? Is their form our form? Uh, do they look just like us? They might. Uh, you know, people say, oh, and evolution is going to be totally different, but they might be exactly like us, except for, you know, some small differences because of their environment. Uh, so we just don't know what their experience and what their history has been. Uh, but 
we know that God took human form to save humans. So maybe he took galactic form to save galactic uh, objects, but we won't know until we meet them, until we talk with them, until we find out where they came from and what they know. And uh, we shouldn't be too quick uh, to welcome them because the history of more advanced people coming to the territory of less advanced people is not, not a jolly one, but maybe they've advanced past that point. All right, I got to stop there. But we will be back next week. The problem is you won't be here because the Clavenless week is upon you. There'll be wailing, darkness, gnashing of teeth. The chances of your surviving are, you know, like you can't even compute them. That's how small they are. But if you do crawl through that terrible territory with a stop off for the All Access show, which I think will be on Wednesday, if you do crawl through that territory of broken glass and broken dreams and make it to next Friday, we'll be back with the Andrew Claven show. And I will still be Andrew Claven. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Vidowski. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Lead audio mixer, Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production coordinator, McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. NBC News gets caught doctoring footage of the Columbus police shooting. House Democrats vote for an anti-constitutional D.C. statehood bill. And a surprising new study sounds the alarm on masks. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show. Hey, friends. Are you struggling to attract and retain top talent? If you're worried about recruiting and retention, consider Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices so you can spend more time growing your business and less time on HR. Visit Insperity.com and download their free ebook on how to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your success. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com.